Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. Let's turn to James 5. Can't believe it. We're in the final chapter of James here. Uh, we're about 22 sermons in, about 22 more to go. Uh, uh, let's begin by reviewing last week uh, by reading verses 13 through 17, chapter 4. We'll read our passage today. We'll pray and we'll get going. Verse 13. <clears throat> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers, you who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Lord, we commit our ways together to you right now. You have worked throughout this week for your honor and glory, whether we know it or not. The prayers of your saints for each other, for me, for the work of the word to go forward and the foolishness of preaching. We ask that Jesus Christ would be hailed the great king today in our own hearts as so easily we take him off the throne this afternoon. Lord, would you give us hearts of repentance and faith? We thank you for your love. Thank you for your word which teaches, instructs, and points directly to Jesus Christ. I pray that we would cherish him today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're like me, uh, you absolutely hate when people who seemingly are bad or don't do the right things seem to get ahead. Is, is that just my own experience? Have you ever known someone who, who, for some reason, they seem to get ahead even though they don't obey God or they don't really care about the right things? They kind of sneak around. They're, maybe they have low morals or low ethics and they just do stuff wily and, and squirmishly and like they somehow still get ahead. Um, that annoys me so much, and I just want to know, how does that happen? I can remember this very acutely in late elementary and in like early high school, junior high school. Uh, I don't know what your, your, your uh, school is like, and maybe this is a different time period than for, for me than it is for you, but I can remember my mom constantly encouraging me to love others, to try to be encouraging to them and, and treat them with friendship, with respect and kindness. Um, 
And this would mean to refrain from making fun of others or putting them down in a clever way um, and then actually sticking up for those people who received that type of criticism. Uh, and I, I don't know if you grew up in a culture like this or not, but I mean, a witty zinger was the stuff of popularity. Like if you could do that well, you were cool. Like that was cool to be able to do that well and make people laugh, both at that person and at your funny joke. Um, I mean, yeah, coolness was like part of like having nice clothes or maybe like your parents drove a nice car or something like that. But that was, it was actually more important in, in my high school to be able to use your words well and really zing people and hurt their feelings and make everyone laugh at the same time. Uh, I can remember, again, my godly mother telling me how important it was to care for those kids that were the butt end of those jokes. Um, you know, not to join the mockers, but rather to be like Jesus, actually be a friend of those types of people. Uh, and I can remember this not making any sense to me. <laughs> like, yeah, mom, that's a really nice idea, and I'm trying. But, like, I'm not getting anywhere with that. Like, I'm trying to do it, trying to be nice to these people in love. It was like a daily struggle just to be nice to the people that were, let alone the ones that were getting made fun of, but like the other people as well. Like how am I supposed to treat these people? Because it felt like I wasn't getting ahead at all. I wasn't like any more popular for sticking up for the weirdos. And then like I, I wasn't gaining any popularity or any clout with teachers or I wasn't getting better grades. And, the, and the, on the exact opposite seemed to be happening for those who were good at making fun of people. Those who were good at using another person for their own gain to show how funny they were or how stupid the other person was. And it seemed like they were more popular and they somehow were like the front of the class type people and like seemed like they were going places. And this bothered me so much. It seemed like things were smooth and easy for them. Uh, they got the opportunities and, and truthfully, like everyone wanted to be like them. They're funny, they're popular, etc. It seemed like in the microcosm of um, my junior high school and the halls there, they were like the untouchable kings. They were just so good at what they did, make fun of people. Psalm 73 speaks to a similar situation. Now, I recognize it doesn't talk about junior high school. It's going to talk a little more of a grown-up, universal way. I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 73. I'll start in verse 3, but I want you to listen. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. I mean, this is my experience. I mean, these guys kept progressing. Why is that? Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease and increasing in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I mean, like I'm crying out, is there, is there no prosperity for the righteous people, like trying to do the right thing? Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Some of you aren't really considering back what junior high was like. Some of you are more thinking like right now. Some of your coworkers, perhaps your neighbors, perhaps even like people in your own family, brothers, sisters, etc. 
and you know that they couldn't care less what Jesus thinks about their life, and they do whatever they want to, and still they seem to prosper, still are something that they become wealthy. They never ask the question, if the Lord wills. They make plans. They succeed in earthly wealth. They make a name for themselves. I mean, mean, talking about last week, they've gone to such and such a town, maybe Virginia Beach or Norfolk, spent a year there or maybe several years, your life. They've traded. They work in the business that they're good at. They've made a profit. They are living the American dream. They're headed for a sweet retirement full of beautiful golf courses, new cars, and expensive cigars. I mean, when we ask the question, what? How does this work out like this? This bothers me so much. I thought that life was like a vapor, like it appears and then it disappears. You know, and that if we aren't primarily concerned with the Lord's will, that we are taking part in evil, arrogant boasting. That's right. That's still right. That's still true. You were listening last week, so that's great. James' words were this in, in verse 13 through 17. He taught us that for a Christian, if a person does not have Jesus Christ before and over all things in their life, then he is boasting. And this boasting is evil. However, that's not the end. He did not say in that passage that this meant that the arrogant, wealthy boasters would not flourish in this life. Remember that wealth, prominence, respect, accomplishments, all these things do not equal God's blessing. Don't believe that lie. Remember we talked back in chapter 1 about hashtag blessed, the way that the world thinks of blessing of God, and how it so easily morphs into looking like all the stuff that we want. In verse 12, we talked about this. He said that blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. It doesn't look like dollar signs or expensive vacations or Gucci bags or nice cars. It's very different. Jesus defines blessing very differently than the world does. The truth is, sometimes the wicked do prosper and they look good. It looks like their life is full and wonderful. Sometimes those who do not acknowledge God build up huge storehouses of stuff and goods, big bank accounts and maybe thriving businesses. James knows that we struggle with this. This is like, we can't figure this out. And so he helps us understand this question that we just asked kind of from Psalm 73, and he's going to expand it for us. I want you to take a look at verses 1, 2, and 3 here. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. James brings us right back to this topic of the rich. This is not the first time this has happened. It's not a new topic for us. Um, We talked about the man planning just this last week about going for a year doing business and making a profit. He was of some means, of some sort. He had some sort of wealth. In chapter 1, if you remember this, we talked about the rich man who would eventually be like the piece of a flower of grass that once the sun hits it, it would wither up and pass away. So that rich man. And then in chapter 2, if you remember, the man who walked in the door to the church, they gave the guy that had rich clothing a, a good seat compared to the other guy. So this is not a new topic, right? We know the rich. But this is a new way to treat the rich. Do, I, I, don't, I don't want us to miss this here. Usually we see some sort of 
uh, call to repentance, or he sees some sort of hope for those, even in their sin, who struggle with these things that a rich person struggles with, they call them to repentance. There's no call for this man in these, in these, in these verses here. Now, the question, like, we're like, don't, doesn't everyone have a shot at repentance? Yes, absolutely. That's still true. But remember what James is trying to do here. James is trying to help us see the plight of the rich, wicked people who seem to be flourishing here around us on earth. I'd personally like to know something. I, I want to know who are these people. Like if James is talking to these people, who is he talking to? For the sake of time, I'll make it pretty simple and, and, and give you my answer after much thought and, and uh, study through this. I believe he's addressing a group of rich unbelievers, those who do not trust Christ. Now, they may think they trust Christ, or they may think that they are part of the church, but in reality, everything about them shows that they don't treasure Christ, but they treasure security, they treasure luxury, and they treasure goods, all stuff that's centered on them. In reality, they believe not in Christ, but in themselves. And so here, uh, we're seeing that this is something that's not for those that are believers yet. I'll get back to that in a moment. His only command in this whole paragraph is the first one. He tells them, rich, you should weep. This is how he treats them. His only command here is that you should weep. Now, you'll see in your translation, it says, like, you should weep and, and wail, or, or, uh, or what does the specific word say? It says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That second word, that and how, is actually a participle explaining the first imperative verb. Now, that's all Greek geeky stuff. I know that. What I'm saying is this. It's more like he's telling them what they should do. They should weep. And that by weeping, he means this, howling, wailing, crying aloud like doomsday is coming. Not like you lost your girlfriend or boyfriend, like you're going to be destroyed. And so this is your, you have nothing left but to howl and weep. Because like he says here, miseries are coming upon you. This isn't language that we've seen James use yet. This is very different. That doesn't mean that we haven't seen it in Scripture. In fact, what we're seeing here is him use language that we've seen on the lips of the prophets. The prophets are the ones that have spoken like this. These kinds of statements are being made against Babylon or Moab or Tyre and Sidon. Uh, they are from the lips of men like Isaiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, or Zechariah. I'm going to read one passage for you so you can get a, a, just a glimpse of this. Isaiah 13, 4 through 6. Isaiah says these words. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Uh, first, I want you to notice this little phrase. He says, Lord of hosts. That's going to be important because we used it in James. So we'll come back to that. But second, this is the same language that James is using here in chapter 5, this idea of wailing, howling, weeping. Isaiah tells the Babylonians that their destruction is coming. The day of the Lord. And the, the proper response then to that is weeping and wailing. That's what James is doing here. He is using similar language to tell the people about their end, what is going to happen to them in the judgment. They understand this, and he shows them specifically what will happen, ultimate destruction. Uh, they may not see it during their lifetime, but it is a sure destruction. It will happen. He moves on to talk about their security. Look at this. He says, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. 
Think about this. This is all stuff that a wise person would collect or store up for like a rainy day or for an uncertain future or for the sake of living luxuriously. And it's all taken away by very natural means, the means of time and weather and the things that are just part of this life. James hits us with three ideas, all pointing to the same thing. Uh, Whatever it is that you trust to keep you happy, safe, or secure, it's going away. (laughs) Uh, Riches will rot, decay. They last for a very short amount of time when we talk about eternity. Apparel, garments, or let's even take it to our realm, big houses, moths will eat them. Some of us know termites will eat them. They will go away. Precious metals will not last. Uh, You can't depend on them even. In fact, they will waste away. He uses the words rust or corrosion. And I recognize that this is not like a nice, easy way, like, well, we all know that this doesn't this, and this does not actually rust away this way. That's not the point for us here. What he is doing is hitting us with three different examples for us to see that this stuff can't go with you. In the kingdom of God, this stuff doesn't matter. This stuff does not save you. It can't. It will rust and corrode. The point is all wasting away and is useless in God's kingdom when you rely on it for your safety or security. The point is that you've placed your trust and your security on a worthless foundation, one that is guaranteed to go away. Like it's not a question, maybe it'll go away. No, it's going to go away. James shows us that riches are a terrible security blanket. Do not invest in the future with riches on this earth. But that's not all. Look what he says next in verse 3. Your gold and silver has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Not only are the rich foolishly taking security in fleeting resources, that's not all. These resources are actually working against these people. How? First, there's, uh, first he says their corrosion will be evidence against you. Then he says they will eat your flesh like fire. And to cap it off, he gives us this ironic statement, you have laid up treasures in the last day. I'll explain these in a minute. All three of these work together to make one major point. The rich are piling up wealth for themselves. Perhaps this is land. Maybe it's a businesses. Uh, in this day, probably costly fabrics or garments goods, money, precious metals, you name it, you you can store it up. All of these things are wasting away. But for the sake of simplicity, James is going to take one of these. He's going to take this corrosion idea. He says that the corrosion on the gold and silver, the fact that you have the corrosion in your possession, like you've kept these gold bars and they're corroding away, the fact that you have it in your possession is evidence that's stored up against you that shows that you're treasuring the wrong things. It shows your foolishness. Instead of it being a help to you in your retirement and and for your longevity, instead, it's providing you with evidence that you've done the wrong thing. It's pretty sad in that way. It will actually send you, what James says, to judgment. The words he uses here is, it will eat your flesh like fire. We're talking about hellfire. We're talking about judgment. He then makes a clear statement that shows that what people are doing is absolutely ludicrous. I said this was an ironic statement. This is what's going on. He's saying, in the last days, they're here. We already know that to be true, guys. He's saying, 
We're, this is now. We're waiting for Christ to come back. The end of times, Jesus is going to come back and destroy the wicked and rescue forever his people. And yet, instead of storing up treasures in heaven, you're storing up treasures here on earth. Like you know what's going to happen, and yet you're storing treasures up here on earth. Let me give us an example here. What if you knew the next big bubble about to pop, a pop in, in some sort of market, and you were invested in that market, what would you do? A wise person would sell it off and get rid of it as soon as he can because he knows it's going to be worthless very quickly. Back in 1999, Ty, the maker of those cute, cuddly uh, beanie babies, announced the retirement of about a dozen beanie babies. Um, this was not the first time that they'd done this. They'd done this several times. And if you remember, if you're that old, like, like well, I can, I can amaze myself that I can say I'm that old and I remember that. Collectors and um, opportunists and investors would take these retirement acts and wait for the retirement to happen, find out which ones were going to get retired, and they would go straight to the store and buy them up as much as they could, as many of them as they could, because they knew overnight the value skyrocketed. It went from about $5 at Walgreens to the next day you could sell it for $30 or $40. So in that sense, it seemed like a pretty good investment. Everyone would want them. Again, this happened over and over again until in 1999 when Ty announced this retirement about another round of Beanie Babies, things changed for some reason. But this time was different. The prices of these toys did not skyrocket. For some reason, everyone's like, oh yeah, they're just toys. I guess that's not worth $30 or $40. It did not skyrocket, and the whole market seemed to change. And overnight, all these investors who could care less about plush toys were like trying to offload them out of their possession. They didn't want anything to do with them. And all of a sudden, the bubble popped. Let's be honest about these silly things. I mean, they're like furry, colorful knickknacks. I hate knickknacks. But, but people went crazy for these things. And they wanted them in their house. I mean, they would buy them up by the hundreds. They'd hoard them in their attics or in their garages, and they'd fill up these Rubbermaid containers full of Beanie Babies. Um, I mean, basically like squirrels storing up acorns preparing for the winter. You know, and probably many attic spaces throughout the United States of America are actually insulated by Beanie Babies right now. But I digress. Do you know how much those old toys are worth now? There, there's a few that are worth something. Almost all of them are worth pennies. If you were to look in your, uh, your ads and go to maybe a local uh, yard sale this Saturday, you're probably going to get 10 for $2. There are pennies now. Again, there are a few that are worth something, but very few. Overnight, they went from being worth something to almost nothing. Talk about depreciation. What a disaster. If you had stored these things up for yourself and overnight no one cares about them anymore, if you had held on to your Beanie Babies, and maybe you have some of you, I, I just hope you enjoy them. You know, I just hope you can snuggle with them and do those things because they're not any good for your retirement. They're not going to help you. So what if you had known this was going to happen and you knew the next day they'd be worthless? What would you do? That's kind of like what's going on in verse 3. What's happening is this. James knows and all the other believers, you and I know that we are in the last days. And the judgment of sinners is very near. In other words, we know that the bubble is about to pop. We understand that. Our earthly stuff will soon be worthless. It'll be gone. And still, 
And still, you're buying up more and more Beanie Babies to put in your attic. How foolish. Instead of being concerned with the kingdom of God, storing up treasure in heaven, believe that it's better to get worldly treasure somehow. This is the first great sin of the rich in our passage, to hoard wealth and to depend on it for security. But that's not all. Look at verse 4 through 6. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James already used this idea of corrosion as like the agent of judgment earlier back in verse 3. Now he's going to do it differently, kind of with, in the same way, in, in some ways, with wages. The wages are the ones, the ones owed to these workers. The first half of the sentence goes something like this. You can kind of weed this out for a moment. It says this, the wages of the laborers are crying out against you. The wages of what laborers? Those who have mowed your fields. Which wages? Those you kept back by defrauding them. But then there's more. Not only this time is it just the wages or the corrosion that's evidence. It goes a little bit further. The harvester's cries for mercy and deliverance have made it to the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's not just evidence anymore, like the blood of Abel in the field that cries out to God, that which is evidence. Instead, now it's the actual cries of these people, these personal pleas to God for action. They have reached the ears of God, the Lord of hosts. James is showing us the next great sin that characterizes the rich, the exploitation of the poor. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, the children of Israel are instructed concerning the poor hired worker. He says this, You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you, to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. The rich have totally disregarded this command. Somehow, these wealthy landowners have received their work, their, their fields have been mown or mowed, but instead of the rest of the deal being completed, what's supposed to happen, you're supposed to give money back to these guys for doing it, the landowners have not paid them at all. In fact, if you skip down to verse 6, you'll see that they've gone further than not just paying. He, they have condemned and murdered the righteous people. Whether this is something about their wages that haven't been paid, or perhaps maybe even some of these poorer people's lands, they have a smaller amount, and they have to keep paying on these, and they don't have the money to do so. They're, now they're, talk, they're caught up in this legal battle. Guess who has the money to keep a legal battle going? The rich do. And in this way, we're not sure. I realize we're kind of speculating about what's going on here. But in this way, they've tied them up so that they have exploited the poor. So much so that they have condemned them and even taken them to a spot where they would say that they're murdering them. I mean, this is pretty serious in one sense in that they've expected them to do this and they're supposed to pay back and if they don't pay them, then they're in this terrible bind. If they didn't, they would be at the mercy, again, of those who owned the debt, who owned that property, who owned that mortgage. And worse, a lot of these families didn't have the money. Again, we have very reasonable and... Uh, helpful ways to get money. We have good capital. We have good credit opportunities. Most of the world doesn't have that. 
The scenario is pretty much similar here. If they didn't have the money to pay back, they're going to be in trouble. If they didn't have the money at the end of the day, they may not eat. So you can see how important it was for this group to actually be paid the wages that they deserved, that they had worked on, they worked for. The rich know these things, and James is pointing out the fact that the rich have no mercy. They have no way of offering a reasonable compromise. Just the opposite is true. The rich take advantage of the poor to the point that James can legitimately say that they are murdering them. He can say that because that's what it's driven them to. For a moment, let me go back to the statement found in the end of verse 4 there. James says that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is a significant statement. Now, some of your translations may say the Lord of Sabaoth. Uh, you may see that in some of there, and that's a good translation as well. The Old Testament uses this, and he's, and he's going back to something bigger here. In Martin Luther's song, we sing it once in a while, a mighty fortress is our God. He says this word. If you remember this, let me just say some of this stuff. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. What Luther is doing is he's using Old Testament imagery and this understanding of the name of God, Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, to conjure up the understanding of all that backs that up. We're talking about the God, or the Lord of armies. We're, we're talking about armies that are huge and they are always victorious. And they always do what the Lord tells them to do. So this is not a small thing. The fact that the cries of those who have been defrauded have reached that God's ear, that God of Lord of Sabaoth, the one of hosts, the one who conquers, the one of armies and always makes it right, this is, should be making these people scared and freak out in one sense. It is understandable then that, that he uses that term on purpose. I'm going to read Isaiah 3, 4, 13, 4 through 6 again. I read this at the beginning. He said, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. The Lord does not lose battles. He can't. The cries of the harvesters have reached that Lord's ear. James has used this name on purpose. The rich ought to be deathly afraid because their doom is sure. They have exploited the poor. But there's one last sin that's worth mentioning here. Uh, verse 5 points out something that is really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's grotesque and pretty uncomfortable. He says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Most of us would rather not that James had put this verse in here because it's probably the one that hits home the most for us. James looks to the wealthy and he points out the sin of luxurious living. The pursuit of luxury, uh, living in a manner that is highly concerned with comfort, uh, with pleasure, with self-indulgence, uh, the best of the best stuff for me. Truth be told, it sounds a lot like the modern American dream. All the stuff pointed at me. He points out that here on this earth, you have lived in a way that is focused on yourself. So much so that he describes the person as an animal. 
He talks about them as if they are livestock that eats, that is consumed with eating constantly, and that grows fat with the richness of good food, never realizing that they have made themselves all the more desirable to the butcher who is ready to slaughter. Now, let me be careful here. We don't want to take that analogy too far. Our God is not a butcher looking to profit off the death of mankind. That is exactly opposite of what God is doing. We know that judgment only comes because of an affront to his holy character. We know that to be true. The point for this analogy is this. We need to see the rich man's posture. He's fooled. He doesn't understand what he's storing up. And this is what he is like. You have lived in earth, on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The truth is, this is another statement of irony. Knowing that there is a day of slaughter coming, the last days, you really ought to be smart. You really ought not to make yourself more and more desirable to the slaughter. You should probably almost starve yourself so that you don't look like that. Just like we read in Psalm 73, James recognizes that the rich are those who have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Instead of finding joy in Christ and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, instead of gaining and enjoying the pearl of great price, the rich have been consumed with the sin of luxury, luxurious living and self-pleasing. Now, I've gone through all six verses. We've noticed three major sins that mark the rich's life that James addresses here. Number one is they hoard wealth and depend on it for security. Number two is that they exploit the poor. Number three is that they pursue self-indulgent, luxurious living. If you are listening and you're a thinker, one of your thoughts is, why is this section of Scripture here? Like, what, why are we reading this and why are we preaching this? I mean, because Chris, you said already that, you know, this is about rich unbelievers. And if that's true, I'm off the hook. I'm not rich and I'm a believer. So this doesn't really apply to me at all. You're right about one thing. The rich here are definitely the wealthy unbelievers, but some of your other conclusions are not right. Uh, you're not off the hook at all. Remember, again, I think we learned so much remembering that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. This is very important. What I want to do is help us understand why this was here. This is something I wrestled with all week here, making sure we, we thought this through well. Why did James include this paragraph? I'll give us four reasons. Number one, this paragraph shows the justice of God. It shows who he is. Is there an answer for sin? Absolutely. It doesn't seem like it in this life. This guy died rich as can be. I mean, he always had pleasure. It looks like everything was right for him. Is there an answer for this? Yes. God requires worship from all men. And he will not be disobeyed, ignored, or belittled by arrogant creatures. Sin must have an answer, for it is rebellion against the loving and gracious creator. This passage then shows us that God can be trusted to be the one that he said who he is. It also gives us great understanding then that he is not one that is fickle. He will answer sin. There will be an answer. There will be justice. Number two, this passage warns rich Christians, wealthy believers, about the allure of earthly treasures. The sins that mark a rich unbeliever 
are going to be the same things that rich believers struggle with and are tempted to. And let's just be honest together, right? Let's talk about a global sense. Everybody that is in this room is rich. If you know anything about the world, we are rich, 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 rich. I realize that there are varying levels of wealth even within this room. It's relative in some ways. And there will be more struggle for some than others. However, we can all pursue the American dream pretty simply here. We all probably ate this morning and probably eat this afternoon and probably will all eat tonight at some point. We probably have somewhere to sleep. We probably will be able, we know somewhat we're going to do throughout the next week. What I want to talk about though is this. Maybe some of us struggle with hoarding and cherishing our earthly possessions more than storing up treasures in heaven. Some stack up in accounts. Some of you may in investments, in businesses. Probably many of others of us, our major asset is probably our house. We put money and time into that thing. To the miser, let me say this. Believer, do not allow your money to corrode and be evidence that you never put your money to the best use in the kingdom of God. Never let that be the evidence against you. Remember the three stewards, the parable of the three stewards that are given money to do something with? Do you remember what happened to the third guy? He takes what he has given and he buries it. He keeps it. He stores it away. He makes sure that nothing can touch it. How is he, uh, the reaction to him when he comes back though? The other guys used it to build, to work with stuff, to get it back into this, into the society and actually get back some sort of profit. This guy was called a wicked servant because he kept it over here and did nothing with it. May we never be that third steward who took whatever little or much that we had and put it away to never use for the sake of the kingdom of God. Instead, let me just, this is very simple. Put it to use in the church. Put it to use for the poor. Put it to use in your neighborhoods. Show love to others. Support other missionaries. Go out and bless people. Ever proclaiming Jesus Christ. Use your wealth well. Give it. Who knows? You'll probably never see the actual return, but Christ and his kingdom will go forth underneath his control. Remembering in faith, we give it over to him to use. Don't have your treasure here on earth, but rather use it. To the rest of us, the house owners, maybe not have a lot of money. Can I just say, believers, that I want to encourage us to have well-worn homes. I, I, I just mean the, the assets that we have May we use them to be assets for the kingdom of God? Whatever little space you have in Norfolk or Chesapeake or, or Virginia Beach, would you use that for the sake of Jesus Christ's kingdom that, that lasts forever? Not that like is going away and your house will probably be knocked down in 50 years or so. Like, would you use that though, not as your treasure, but rather as something to give back to Jesus Christ? We should have well-worn homes where we have to clean the house way more than normal people. Like we have to probably touch up the trim and the board and batten more often because people keep banging into the rails as they work through our house and they spend time at our kitchen tables. We should be buying more kitchen tables than everybody else because we're full of hospitality. You should have impressions in your couches where people are sitting over and over and over again because you're using your house for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What treasure do you have? My parents never owned a home until they were, I think, probably in their 40s. 
Uh, my dad was a poor pastor, and I can remember my mom would have the same thing every Sunday. We'd have a chicken dinner, and there'd always be someone in our home, always, using that opportunity to bless and love others. The other thing she would do is have people over after different services or different times throughout the week. Always there was popcorn and lemonade. They're very cheap, very simple. But that's what they had, and they wanted to use that. My, my mother, a godly woman, knew what she had, and it wasn't much, but she would give it so that she could open her house to people and bless them. Guys, I'm pretty sure that all of us have more than that. That's not the point. I'm not trying to hurt you and think like, hey, you should really do this. This is not stiff arming. This is encouraging one another for the sake of the kingdom. You can treasure up these things in heaven by taking your treasure and giving it out and blessing those that are around us. This is what we are about as Christians. Again, this is not about us uh, chalking up another one that we can say we did this thing. This is actually about investing in the kingdom of heaven. This passage warns Christians, wealthy believers, about the allure of earthly treasures. Number three, this passage warns poor Christians, legitimately poor Christians, never to envy the rich. This shows us what actual riches bring and the struggles that come along with it. When we see the rich person prosper, there's a great temptation to hate them and to be envious of them. A Christian of great or small means should never envy the rich. This passage makes it abundantly clear that pursuing earthly treasures is foolishness and it will end in destruction. The poor Christian should not envy the rich. The last thing, number four, and then my favorite. This passage bolsters our confidence in the true treasure, Jesus Christ. You've probably heard it said around here, or me before, all of Scripture whispers the name of Jesus. If you've read the Jesus Storybook Bible, you'll see that's one of the undertitles there. Every story whispers his name. You take a look at, at, at James here, this, this passage, you're like, I don't see Jesus' name in here. What are you talking about? He is there. If, if we don't get this, then it's not worth being here this morning. He proclaims himself, as James proclaims the emptiness of these earthly treasures, the stuff that's around us, and leave, what happens is it leaves a bigger and bigger and deeper hole in our hearts for something that cries out to fill it. If we know that all these other things don't fulfill and that they're going to corrode and they're going to be eaten by moths, the hole gets wider and wider. Like, what is there worth living for? We were never meant to be satisfied with fleeting wealth. That's so temporal and stupid. We were made to find our complete sufficiency, fulfillment, and happiness, our joy in Jesus Christ and him alone. He is our treasure. He will not disappoint. He will never fail. Brothers and sisters, if you can learn something today, this is the thing. And may we preach it every day, day in, day out. Jared read it this morning. Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. He is our king. And not only that, he may sound boring to you if you don't actually know who he is, but I promise you he is not boring. He is the one who has taken the gap between God and man and made a way for reconciliation to happen. Through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his work through the Spirit now, he is bringing men to many sons to glory. He is working that. No one else can do that. All your righteousness, you can't do it. But Jesus did it. 
If I can encourage you to trust Jesus, if I could go down and like shake you, I would. You must trust Jesus. He is everything. Not all your Bible knowledge, not all your good works even. None of that stuff can save you. But Jesus can. He is the true treasure. He is everything. All this is meant for you to see that Jesus is the greatest treasure in all of life. Not lands, not businesses, not the things that we cherish. None of that. It will all be gone. Jesus, rather, is the greatest treasure. He's a gentle shepherd. He's a sympathetic high priest. Do you get how precious that is? Before a holy and perfect and righteous God, we can go and speak to him as sons. He is the most loving neighbor. I remind you lastly of David's words in Psalm 16, 11. He says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, love Jesus. He will not fail. He will not falter. He will always come through. Let's pray. God most high, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the foolishness of preaching that you chose to use weak and foolish people simply to carry the message of Jesus Christ to the world. Would you help us to use all of our resources for you? God, please give us eyes that are bigger than just right around us and that we would rather see the kingdom of heaven for what it is and want to invest our time, our talents, our life, our money, our houses, everything for your sake. Would we be people that are just conduits of resources, love, talents, money, all that, God, because we believe and know Jesus Christ? We thank you for doing the work that you've done in us. Praise you for your grace in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.